Welcome to Good For All. I'm Monique Nelson. Good For All is a podcast by Possibilities, a not-for-profit association that offers community living support services to persons with developmental disabilities and their families. On the podcast, we share stories about disability, community, and inclusion, and invite you to join us as we work toward our vision of good and full lives for all. In this episode, we're going to explore how to foster healthy relationships, including intimate ones, and what you need to know about sexual health education in your role as a parent, caregiver, or support worker. For this conversation, we have invited three of Possibility's sexual health educators, who collectively are involved in delivering the curriculum that they have developed. It's called LINK. Sherry Nazrin is also a behavior consultant. Becky Molly is our clinical supervisor in the Okanagan. Both are with Laurel Behavior Support Services. And Darren Frisk is a team manager and registered behavior technician who leads some of our group residential services. Together, they deliver body science and sexual health education to children, youth, and adults with intellectual or developmental disabilities across BC. Welcome to our podcast. Let's get started. Darren, could you please introduce yourself and let us know why you were attracted to this area of support? My name is Darren Frisk, and I'm the team manager of the Green Pod with Possibilities. Um, I was attracted to taking Sheck. Sheck stands for Sexual Health Educator Certification, and it's a, an intensive course that somebody would take to learn how to be a sexual health educator in BC. Many people that are sexual health educators in BC take the Sheck course to have the certification to teach in classrooms or other settings. When I went to school, there wasn't inclusive sexual health education. As a gay man, I often felt that I was left out and that the curriculum wasn't adapted for me. So I wanted to make sure that everyone that we offered the curriculum to felt like they fit in and didn't felt left out. Thanks, Darren. That's such a good point. And I really appreciate you sharing both the personal and professional reasons for getting into this line of work. I'll turn it over now to Sherry. Sherry, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became a sexual health educator? Hi, everyone. I'm Sherry Nasrin. So I'm a board certified behavior analyst and a sexual health educator with possibilities. I was attracted to being a sexual health educator due to seeing the need for sexual health with the youth that we support. Most of the youth that we support are not in a sexual health class. When it's offered, uh, the parents would tell me that they've been removed or the parents aren't even aware if anything happened. And then they're asking us to address behavior, sexual behaviors that are happening in inappropriate contexts. And often parents will tell us that they're just not comfortable or don't know what to teach. So that attracted me to realizing that there is a need for this. And the current sexual health educators out there, most of them don't have a background focusing on individuals with diverse abilities. So I felt this would be a great space to intersect myself in. 
Oh, thank you, Sherry. That's so true. I know as a parent, it's one of the topics that I struggle with all the time and have since my children were young. And that's why when you go to school events and you see that there's a gymnasium filled with 300 parents to learn about what the sexual health educator is going to talk about, there's clearly a need and parents want to be involved. So thank you for helping us address that um, information need. And I wonder if you could tell us, Becky, about uh, what kind of resources there are in the Okanagan where you work and what brought you into this line of specialization for the agency. I'm Becky, and I'm also a board-certified behavior analyst and uh, a sexual health educator, and I work as the clinical supervisor in the Okanagan. And when we started exploring the SHEC program, one of the primary reasons that I was interested in it was we saw a need in the adult population that we support where folks were wanting more information about sexual health. They had questions. They were trying to get information and resources on their own. But, you know, as you know, Google can be a wonderful place, but it can also be a bit of a rabbit hole for some questionable information. And so creating the curriculum of Link was a way to address that that need in the community to provide people knowledge on sexual health so then they could begin navigating um, relationships on their own and feel confident doing so. Oh, that's excellent. I mean, we hear about this all the time that there's this missing link. <laughs> that's probably how you <laughs> exactly. came up with the name, right? So can you please tell us a little bit more about just exactly what is link um, from the point of view of starting right at the beginning, the work that can be done with children right through to adults? So we offer LINK for children, youth, and adults. And I will say that the curriculum for children and youth uh, differs very s slightly to the adult curriculum, but, but not by a lot. And so for the children cu curriculum, we focus on, on body science. Um, that's a really important component. And then as we move through the, the youth and the teen years, then we'll focus on things like puberty, self-care, navigating relationships, uh, types of touch and trusted people. Uh, and then for youth and adults, we focus on all of the topics that I've mentioned, including uh, topics around thinking about sex, uh, different types of sexual activities, um, online safety, pornography, uh, gender and identity. I like to think that Link is a very all-encompassing when it comes to topics of sexual health. And so we walk people through the basics of consent and the law all the way up to, you know, engaging in, in sexual activities and being in, in romantic or intimate relationships. That's quite a spectrum. And how long does it take to teach? Maybe I can ask uh, Sherry, what kind of pace are you looking at when uh, working with children and youth and their families? If we were to run a group, every session is about an hour in length, depending on how many questions the participants have in the group and how much discussion is sort of facilitated. And the same goes if we do this on a one-to-one -one basis as well. It can be a, each topic can be an hour or it can be shortened to half an hour and we teach it just in smaller components. We really adapt our learning uh, styles and the length of the topic to the individual, especially if it's being taught on a one-to-one -one basis versus a group basis. And Sherry, do, do parents participate in some way in the session or support separately or behind the scenes? 
Yes. So prior to teaching the sessions, whether it's as a group or it's one-to-one, we do set up an interview with the parents and we just let them know what we're talking about, the languages that we're going to use, the importance of this, address any questions that they have. And we do show pictures from our PowerPoint so they can see that these are the illustrations that we will be showing. This is our different types of learning styles as well. And after every topic, there is a take home, which focuses on just the key points that we had discussed in that topic. And we encourage the parents to continue those conversations by reviewing that take home with them. And we also do uh, let's see what you know and let's see what you remember before and after a class. And from the previous group that we ran, one of the feedbacks that the parents gave us is that they found that let's see what you remember assessment, a good benchmark for them to continue having conversations and it opened up a bit of dialogue in their home. Have you ever heard uh, parents say things like, you know, my, my young adult is actually mentally much younger in age and I don't think this is appropriate. And how do you overcome um, parents' concerns around introducing this education? Yeah, when we ran the first group, there was a a family who, who did mention that and even working one-to-one right now, I, I do have a parent who had made the same comment. And what I let the parents know is... While they may uh, mentally be at a different age, the law is going to look at their chronological age. Whether you're 16 and you may be mentally, a parent might say, well, my child really functions at a five-year-old level. But if they're engaging in behavior that is what another 16-year-old does, it's important for them to understand what's public and what's private, what spaces and what actions are acceptable in locations. We also know from our schooling and and research that people absorb the information that they're ready to absorb. So if they're not ready to hear it, it's not going to stick with them. Uh, So hearing that information is just helpful, but what they'll retain is what really what they're ready for. Well, that's super interesting and, and must go a long way to allaying people's concerns about introducing too much information or at the wrong time. Becky, could you tell us a little bit about uh, where Link services are provided and how people access them? Link services can be both in-person. Lately, we've been doing much more virtual sessions given the the way of the world right now. Uh, But we are in the midst of creating a a Link-specific website where people can go to that website and get all information related to Link. Right now, you can go to the Possibilities website and access those services there. And there's a button when you get to the link services that says get started, and it gives you an opportunity to input information or, or, or question um, how the service can be beneficial for you. And then somebody from Possibilities will get in contact with you and can start that process. So currently, we have sessions running in the Okanagan, as well as sessions in the Lower Mainland and on Vancouver Island. And those sessions currently are ranging uh, with youth as well as with adults. And do you also provide a service to other agencies or parents? Can they call up and ask for a consult from one of Possibilities Educators? 
Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned on the website there, you can click on that Get Started and that can be a way to to contact us. Um, otherwise, you can connect with possibilities and they will trickle you to the right person to talk to. But a lot of the a lot of the work that we have done um, has been outside of possibilities. You know, in the Okanagan, for example, it, we are working with a variety of agencies and and providing the link curriculum. So it is accessible for any and any Anyone and everyone that that is interested in participating. That's good to know. I can't imagine how you get your other work done. <laughs> it's a balancing act. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about the process of developing the link curriculum? Yeah, it was a, a process is a really good way to put it. Um, I remember when, you know, Sherry, Darren and I first started talking about Link and what it was going to look like. I don't think any of us realized how long and how much time it would take to put the curriculum together. And so it was a labor of love for like a good portion of a year, I would say. We're still making tweaks to ensure that the curriculum is speaking to the needs of the folks that we're, we're connecting with. So there was a lot of there was a lot of time. There was revisions and, and just to making sure that the information within the link curriculum, as Sherry had mentioned, was also in line with the information that people are expected to know at certain ages. So people can become equipped with the knowledge to make those decisions. Sherry, maybe you can jump in here and uh, taking off on that theme of what you're supposed to know, and, you know, when you're a school age student, you're supposed to know certain things by certain ages. And you find that information out uh, in phys ed class, <laughs> oftentimes when they do the education, or from your peers or from a sibling. What is the biggest gap that you've seen when you say work with a 16 year old student who may have a diverse ability, uh, who you know, needs this education. Can you give us an example of just how big that gap can be? With the groups that we've taught so far, I'm actually very impressed that all of them have a great understanding of consent. But one of the biggest gaps that we have seen is just understanding the importance of ongoing consent, at, you know, for every action, right? So I hugged you once. It doesn't mean I can always give you a hug or, or even knowing that people need to get consent to touch their body. So that's a big gap we've noticed as well. We support individuals that may need quite a bit of support with personal hygiene. And we see that gap where they, they might associate that, well, anybody can touch me. They always, I'm always being touched for support with care. So that's one gap, knowing that they even need to give consent to be touched. And a gap around self-care is another piece as well. So knowing that it's okay to engage in private time, be alone, take love your body in a loving way, often that's missed. We support individuals who are 21 or older, and they may come back to us and say, masturbation is bad. I, I'm not allowed to do that. Or I'm not allowed to be in a relationship until I'm a certain age. So we see where a lot of those gaps are. And it may have been fed from childhood because maybe someone didn't know how to address it. And it's easier if we just say, that's bad, or you have to be a certain age to do this. And it just sort of ends right there. Could you please tell us about the role of culture, values, and beliefs in your educational work? Absolutely. 
We know that family culture plays an important piece, and it may be a reason why some individuals don't have access to certain information. And the stance that we take is we focus on safety. So we let the family, the caregivers know that the person has the right to access this information. The information that we provide is according to the BC standards of education around sexual health. So according to those laws, they have the right to access that information. They should already know that information in school. And while we provide that information, we can embed family values and culture into that. So for example, if a family says, you know, masturbation is taboo, we do not do that. We can take that into effect and say, that's okay. We'll provide information on where the person should be doing that if they ever choose to, or just even knowing, you know, if you see somebody doing this act in public, know that that's not okay. That's illegal. That's against the law. This is where that would happen. And then we would tie in, in your family home or in your culture, these are the rules or the views around these certain sexual behaviors. So we tie it in both ways. I think it's important for people to know that it's not about our beliefs. It's about we're teaching what everyone has a right to know. We have our own beliefs and values, just like every person does. Our role is not to, is not to try to put our beliefs and values on other people. It's to empower people to have information and education. And the information that we're teaching is information that everyone deserves to know and has the right to know. So a fully inclusive society includes all aspects of the people we serve. We can't pick and choose what it is we want to teach them or which rights are convenient for us to include. Right? For sure. Yeah. <laughs> Following on what Sherry and, and Becky have just said, fast forward a few years and some of the individuals we serve may be living in a group home with other adults. And maybe they didn't get all the education they needed at school. Can you tell me what that manifests like in a residential setting and how you go about starting to fill those gaps? Yeah, one of the reasons we created LINK is in the past, there would tend to be some sexual health education after maybe an issue had popped up. So we wanted to make sure that we're being proactive and making sure that people have information and the education so that they're able to make decisions for themselves, make safe decisions. Uh, maybe if someone's choosing to masturbate, they know where to do it, how to, uh, how to re-support somebody with that. Um, because in the past, it was typically done when there had been an issue that had popped up. Right. And do you find that uh, staff are comfortable supporting folks if, say, they want to have a boyfriend or girlfriend to come over and stay with them in a group residence? Well, we're working towards that. I think it's a little bit difficult right now, like with the, with the pandemic, um, with, with visitors, but definitely that is something where staff are seeing that a person served have a right to have relationships. I support an individual right now that's doing online dating with somebody. And the staff team that's working with that person is working to make sure that they're going about that in a safe way. Because, of course, anytime there's online things involved, there can be safety concerns with that. Um, but this person's quite excited that they have a boyfriend now and that they've uh, been able to do that virtually. In your practice so far, can you tell us about a time where you really saw success, you know, a transformational moment where the education really opened up an opportunity for an individual or family? Uh, you know, in one group that Darren and I taught the very, very first time around, we noticed one individual kept repeating, 
you know, no touching in the bathroom. So we realized for that person, that one lesson that Darren and I taught around public versus private, it spoke to that individual. They perhaps they, we don't know if they were doing that or if they came across that, but for weeks on out, that's the one thing that that person kept repeating to us every time they saw Darren and I. So we realized that that information must have had an, a real impact on them. And even in our uh, last group that we just ran with the youth, we asked at the end, what are your feedbacks? What did you like? And most of the teens came back and said the importance of consent. And they started to realize what consent meant and how often they, they need it. Another individual mentioned around consent, is it okay for somebody to touch my shoulder? And, you know, we asked them, if you don't like that, then that's not okay. And even that was a, a moment for that person like, oh, I can tell someone that they're standing too close to me or that they're touching me in a spot that I don't like it. And also, I can imagine the value that you bring in experience working specifically with people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Something like the bathroom example, someone needs to generalize, you know, the bathroom at home, the bathroom at the mall, like what's, what's appropriate in which spaces and how do you teach that, right? Um, I know personally I've been in situations where I've been interacting with security guards because something has happened in the washroom and they're looking for someone to talk to about it. And the individual didn't know what they were doing was inappropriate, right? So it's all these uh, life lessons that actually are really central to community inclusion, uh, being successful when you're out, out and about. So Darren, can I ask you what makes LINK stand out from other educational services that you're familiar with? I would think that the experience of the sexual health educators would be a really key piece to that. There's five sexual health educators that are working with possibilities, and we all have varied experience working with different populations. Um, we have, you know, experience working with children and youth, experience working with adults, and also working from the front lines um, and knowing how people are supported and how um, staff teams may have a hard time with supporting people with their sexuality. It can be uncomfortable. You know, it's not something as a society we talk about very often. There's a lot of stigma about sex and sexuality. I think that is a big key piece is having the experience working on the front lines and supporting people. I think there's some misconceptions about sexuality and disability. Uh, for example, that people with disabilities can't have sex or that people with developmental disabilities just aren't sexual. Can you speak to that? And have you encountered those kinds of misconceptions in your work? Yeah, I think there is a lot of misconception about that out, um, out in the world. Uh, many people uh, feel that individuals with disabilities maybe don't have sexual feelings, but that's not true. How do we empower individuals that we support to be able to uh, make decisions that maybe, you know, people in their lives might not agree with and how to navigate that? Everyone in Canada has a right um, to have information about their sexuality, to have sexual relationships if they so choose to. But we want to make sure that we're supporting people to do it in a safe way. And, you know, it is difficult because most parents don't view their kids as being sexual beings or maybe, you know, um, whether their child has a disability or not. 
Um, so there's always that piece to that as well. A lot of times it's working with families to understand that romantic relationships for many people uh, provide a lot of benefit to someone's lives and everyone's deserving of that. And I've seen a lot of improvements with some families in being able to understand that their child has the right to learn about their sexuality. And really a big piece of that is about safety. You know, if people don't have information about how to properly, are, um, you know, go into a safe relationship, how to be able to express their sexuality or even knowing where to masturbate, that can cause our uh, concern for that person later on. Yeah, for sure. And I'm going to pass this question over to to Sherry. Um, what do teens need to know to safeguard themselves from abuse? Is there one critical thing? I would say consent and knowing the types of touch that's appropriate with, across the different types of relationships and categories of individuals that would be in that relationship. For example, knowing uh, what's what's the typical typical kind of touch among friends versus a paid staff. What's one thing that would make a difference if taught in the home setting and one thing in the school setting based on your experience working with children and youth? I would say public and private. Uh, most parents, if someone's engaging in masturbation, they would teach them the bathroom's okay. And then you would see that happening at school, happening at the mall. So I would say at home for parents to drill that oh, the bathroom is not the place for masturbation. And the only place in our house that's private to you specifically is your bedroom. And if they share a bedroom, then to teach how to make that space private and when to ask for that private space. I would say that's important at home. And at school, probably emphasizing on different types of touch and relationships is a big one because they interact with so many different individuals at school. That's a great response. It really does put it into context for us. And I'm going to ask Becky, um, tell us about a time when health education was not provided and an adult got into trouble with the law. Someone that you know of who we serve got into trouble with the law. What happened and how was the situation addressed? Is there any leniency for people with disabilities? I would say that I've seen variability across this, um, where there's some cases where individuals have been engaging in sexually appearing behaviors, and it, it might not have been a sexual nature, but because it was inappropriate within that context, then there was follow-up with the law. Now, when we get to that piece with the law, we've seen it go two ways, uh, and I think a part of it has depended on the act itself. And so in, in some cases we have seen the law get involved and charges be laid and then going through that process. And then we have also seen in other cases where it hasn't gone any further because of the person's uh, diverse ability or their lack of information they had pertaining to sexual education. And I would say one of the biggest gaps. And one of the large reasons why LINK, I think, is so important for adults with their diverse abilities and, and youth and children for that matter, is that when people have information, they make decisions based on readiness. And as Sherry had mentioned, you know, if somebody's not ready for the information, then they won't act on it. But when we leave people without information, they make decisions based on opportunity. 
And in cases where an individual has engaged in behavior of a sexual nature that has uh, intersected with the law, in a lot of cases, those individuals were making decisions based on opportunity and weren't coming from a place of readiness. So the the work that we've been doing with Link has really been to to try to fill that gap. So then folks have the information and then they can make those decisions based on readiness and with safety in mind and the law and all of those parameters versus getting to a place where they are in quote unquote trouble. And then we have to backpedal in terms of that capacity and education piece. Yeah, that really makes sense. And I'm wondering how we can empower individuals and yet not take over their voice. Um, I'll give you an example. So there's a fellow I know who worked um, in a childcare and uh, he was, he was taken out of that role by his parents who didn't support him to work there any longer because they were afraid his uh, affinity for hugging would get him into trouble in that setting. Mm. He, he loved children. But they feared that as a larger man, him volunteering in that setting, he could get himself into trouble. So how can we create um, opportunities without disclosing too much personal information about an individual and kind of support them to do what they want to do out in community safely? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I think it comes down to how can we adapt the curriculum and what are some additional strategies that we can use to assist that person? So in that particular situation, I think, you know, is there, you know, visuals that we could support that person so then they, you know, that he understands within that setting, this is the type of touch that's appropriate with with the children versus, you know, with the, the teacher and that, you know, we can that it's it's all wonderful for that person to have a des, you know a desire and a connection um but how do we demonstrate that in an appropriate way where everybody feels comfortable because you you raise a great point in that you know we want to ensure that we're not providing too much information to people while having that environment safe and inclusive for everyone so i think that's sort of where you can find that balance yeah, that's interesting because I think if his parents had known what you've been talking about today, they would have been able to support him to stay in that role. But out of fear, they chose to to not support him to continue to volunteer there. Yeah, and that and that fear can really play a huge part. You know, when we talk about that readiness versus opportunity, there's this misconception that if people have information about sexual health, that they're going to do all of the sex things. And and that's just that's just not the case. So when we can educate people and set people up for success, then then that's where we see that that growth and that you know, those inclusive environments and, and having people, you know, be in touch with, with what makes them tick, if you will. So we've talked about cultural beliefs, we've talked about safety, we've talked about the importance of consent. And I was thinking about um, identity as well, about being gay, gender identity, like people often don't think of folks with developmental or intellectual disabilities as sexual beings, let alone the full diversity of sexuality, experience and identity that's manifest. How does your curriculum address people with diverse abilities who are very different in how they identify across the spectrum? 
we make sure that the entire curriculum is inclusive. So we really use language to make sure that it's inclusive to everybody and to make sure that we're not gendering things. That's something as society, we um, often put genders on things and don't realize that we're doing it. I remember when I took this class, I realized how much I say the word guys. And guys, there's a gender to that. So you really try to make sure throughout the entire curriculum that we are using language that's inclusive. There is a, a topic in the curriculum that, that we teach that is around gender and identity and just teaching the different, um, you know, spectrum of what that can look like. And I'll add to that. One of the reasons that we wanted to put an emphasis on gender and identity and throughout our curriculum focus on using language that's inclusive to all people of inclusive to all genders and all sexuality is because research shows. So in 2018, George and Stokes, they did a, they did a study that showed individuals with autism are 55 to 70% more likely to be LGBTQIA plus and are at a higher risk for uh, experiencing gender dysphoria. And that was strange and at all in 2018 found that study. It's a, such a high percent, 50 per, over 50% may identify it under LGBTQ plus. And so for that reason, it's really important that our, our focus when we teach is inclusive to all genders, all sexuality. And we hit on that topic because we know there's individuals in our groups that are questioning or are not quite sure. And even in the last group that we taught, we had youth ask us, what's the difference between bisexual and pansexual? And one of the previous groups that Darren and I taught to adults, one of the feedback that was given by a participant was they they really liked it. They really liked the course and they really liked that we discussed about gender and identity and it felt a bit more of a connection to them because often families are not talking about this with them. So in closing then, what is one thing you can leave with family members and caregivers to help them feel empowered in addressing this topic with the people they care about and support? I would say that you don't have to know everything to answer the question or to have the topic. Often parents feel that they can't address the situation because they don't have all the facts and information. So take your time, acknowledge a question, acknowledge the topic, come back and say, that's great. We're going to talk about it at this time. Gives you a little bit of time to look up your facts and research if you need to. And using the sex sense line is a fantastic resource to get that information. If you have a any question, you can ask them and they will email you all the resources you need to feel a little bit prepared to have that topic. And remembering that individuals will absorb what they're ready to absorb. How about you, Darren? Any parting words for our audience? You know, I've been working in supporting individuals with disabilities for almost 15 years now. And when I first started, a lot of my experience was working in group homes and supporting people there. There was really no talk about sexuality. And there was definitely um, not an open space to have those conversations. And you would almost feel like having those conversations as a staff would be inappropriate. Part of our role is about teaching staff how to have those conversations in a, you know, in a way that's comfortable for the person served, answers their questions, 
And I think it's important to know as well that we're not going to always have the answers as Sherry noted, you know, and you don't have to have the answer right now. It's okay to say to somebody, you know what, that's a great question. I don't really know the answer to that. And then you can get the information and go back later. It's better to say you're not sure and get the right information than say, than kind of guess at it. Thank you to Darren Frisk, Becky Molly, and Sherry Nasrin for speaking with us for this episode. You can learn more about Link at laurelbc.ca slash link. For more resources related to inclusive and accessible sexual health care and education in BC, look up Options for Sexual Health. You can access information and resources through their SexSense phone line or on their website. And for more open, honest conversations about sex and relationships, check out Real Talk. Real Talk hosts Hangouts, where adults with cognitive disabilities can listen to conversations on dating and relationships or ask questions of their own and get answers from a certified sexual health educator. You can find links to all these resources in the episode description. listening to Good For All from Possibilities. I'm your host, Monique Nelson. You can learn more about programs and services like Link on our website at www.possibilities.ca. Keep up with the podcast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And if you like what you heard, share this episode with your family and friends. Thank you for joining us.